morning, Redeemer. It is so good to be with you. How's everybody? Good. Now, this is a rare thing. Well, I don't think we think of it that way, but it's a rare thing to come together and worship God. You know, these are moments. This is a gathering that will never happen again. And it's sealed in all eternity. So it's very special. It's very important. And it honors the Lord. We are lifting up the name of Christ together. We're looking at an interesting passage this morning, Mark 14, um, 53 through 72. You might want to get your thumb there. Hey, are you, are you the kind of person that compromises? Do you compromise? You kind of work things out with people? Or, or do your friends tell you you're uncompromising? You're an uncompromising person. If you compromise, are, are you compromised? Have you been compromised? It's a different thing. You know, that word, compromise, in a positive sense, means something like meet in the middle. You, you, you know what it's like to give and take to reach some kind of agreement or business deal or whatever it is. There's, there's lots of compromises like that in life, right? Um, just this past week, I was in Turkey. And when I was in Turkey, I flew a regional airline in country, and I compromised price for service, right? So I took a, a, a cheap regional airline, and I sacrificed price for on-time departures and price for some safety, probably, and, <laughs> and a much, much later flight after I'd missed my flight because my flight was late, right? So, so okay, so sometimes there are compromises we just don't win on. But when we talk about compromise in a negative sense, we start talking about something that has been compromised. It means that we've given away something that we shouldn't have. At that point, we agree with Lord Edward Cecil, who said, compromise is an agreement between two men who do what both agree is wrong. It could be a personal commitment you make to yourself. She compromised herself for him. It could be a betrayal of public trust, like a politician. One who's betrayed his promises to the public. We're not shocked by that. We expect that. So it could be something even more serious, like a pastor could break his trust with the congregation. When we talk about a compromised marriage, we, we mean a marriage that has in some ways been broken because the marriage vows have been broken. Now, in each of these examples, you see, there, there is some kind of conviction, a promise, a vow, a sacred trust, and it's been broken. How does, how does compromise happen? Usually there's some deeply held value that's broken. How does that happen? Something that we once thought was so important becomes a distant memory. Well, well, it happens with slow, slow, steady steps, a, a, a glance, an unchecked thought, an unconfessed slip of our convictions. I remember uh, years ago seeing a, a short video clip of children in a playground after Sunday school class talking about God and their convictions about Jesus, about God, about themselves were so clear. It was amazing. Little kids on swings talking about God. It was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing about faith. Those children were followed and interviewed later in life. 
They were asked the same questions. Their answers were so clouded and hedged and flat wrong. What what had happened? Well, life happened. As you might expect, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Let's look at this passage today, Mark 14, starting in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, He will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was a blow in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also was with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say again to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystander again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to evoke a curse on himself and and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed, A second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The sermon today is in three parts. They are different than the outline in your sermon notes in the bulletin. So let me give you the headings and the verses for them if you are taking notes. One, the kangaroo court, verses 53 through 65. Two, trial in the courtyard, 66 through 72. And three, the final court, 61 through 62. The kangaroo court, number one. The trial in the courtyard, number two. And three, the final court. Well, Jesus stands before the high priest after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, I think most people would argue, or that I could argue, in fact... And most people would agree that the Friday recorded in Mark 14 is one of the most remembered days 
in human history. Good Friday has been celebrated consistently by the church through the ages. And the entire book of Mark is building up to this day. Now that's, of course, lost on this group of religious leaders. They, they don't understand the flow of human history. They don't see how it could hinge on this day. And they are players in it. But they are unaware. They are compromised in their religion. Not that they haven't looked forward to this day for themselves. They've been scheming for it for a a long, long time. They're scheming for a different reason. They want Jesus in their clutches, away from the adoring crowds who they feared. Remember remember when we looked back in Mark chapter 3 at the man with the withered hand? How the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders were trying to trap Jesus because he was doing miracles on the Sabbath. He was at the synagogue. He stood the man with the withered hand before them. He asked the question to the gathered crowd, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to kill? They were silent. He was angry with them. He healed the man with the withered hand. And do you remember what the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees went and did at that point? They went out from the synagogue and plotted to kill Jesus. They plotted murder on the Sabbath. This gathering is even more unholy than that. They've decided before the trial that Jesus is guilty, that he needs to be put to death. And it's during the Passover week, one of the holiest times in the Jewish calendar. You remember the Passover, right, from the book of Exodus? Where the death angel passed over the Jewish people in Egypt? Where, where the, the families who followed God sacrificed a lamb and put the blood on their doorpost so that they might be spared. The death angel passed over and all the firstborn died. In the land. You remember the Passover. They celebrate their deliverance from that. In verse 59, we see that these people are sticklers for the law. The laws they worry about here are the laws from Numbers and Deuteronomy about how to have court. The witnesses must agree. <laughs> and of course, ironically, ironically, Those laws in Deuteronomy and the book of Numbers was to prevent kangaroo courts, were to prevent injustices like were happening right here. This is a lynching. It's a mockery of justice. Kangaroo court, by the way, just means that you leap leap over, you jump to a conclusion with no fair trial. They want to rush the murder of Jesus so that they can go celebrate the Passover. This gathering is at the wrong time, it's at night, in the wrong place, in a private house, tried by the wrong person. The high priest was not supposed to be prosecutor. He was not supposed to be questioning Jesus. He was supposed to be an impartial judge. The witnesses were asked to commit perjury. They allowed the guards to abuse the prisoner. Is it no wonder that they delivered an unjust verdict? Jesus does not respond to his false accusers. So he fulfills Isaiah 53, that he would be silent like a lamb before his slaughterers. 
But to the direct question from the high priest about his divinity in verse 61, he does respond. We'll come, we're going to come back to that in the last, the last section. But notice here the great irony. No one, no one should have been more aware of who Jesus was than the high priest. That's why he existed. The high priest was the one man in all of Israel who offered the sacrifice of atonement. Once a year, he would slaughter a lamb as a sacrifice for atonement. He was the one person who could go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the lamb for the sins of the people. Atonement is that idea that the sins of the people were forgiven by God by a perfect sacrifice. But bulls and goats and sheep would never cover all our sin. That's why it was done every year. The Passover sacrifice only served to point to the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who one day would arrive to take away the sins of the world. The Passover pointed to this day in the book of Mark. Jesus is the final sacrifice for the sins of the world. That's why, that's why Christians don't sacrifice. We don't offer sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled the commands. So the Passover Lamb of God is standing right before the high priest. And the religious rulers who existed to serve him didn't see him. They didn't see Jesus for who he was. Why? Why? How could it be? How had these religious men become so blind, so numb, so asleep? No doubt their hearts were hardened, just as Pharaoh's heart had been hardened. But the religious leaders had forgotten that religion is not to serve them. So they made slow and steady compromises about their faith for their own security or worldly goods. It came slowly, almost without notice. As C.S. Lewis wrote in Screwtape Letters, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Now, we must be careful always when we look at the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, And remember, we're not that different. And I want you to understand two quick things about how to think about religion. Number one, stop thinking that religion can get you saved. Religious practice doesn't save you. In fact, if anything, if you're not careful, it will kill your soul. It it happened to the elders and the high priest. They were blind because they practiced a blind religion. If anyone was good at practicing religion, it was them. They practiced ceremonies that God had given them to Moses faithfully through the centuries. And yet when the Son of God came and appeared before them, they put him to death in a kangaroo court. They were blind guides. But blind religion is everywhere today. Don't 
trust religious practice. Don't trust religious heritage. Don't trust your religious background. It's a person you need to trust. Jesus. Cling to him. Spend time with him. Read his word. Get to know him. And then you will be able to see. Secondly, true religion is to serve God, not you. As Rick Warren said, it's not about you. You know, I've heard, I've heard it said in our own congregation that if you do right, if you, if you do the right things, uh, God will give you good things. Now, now we have to be careful here. This is, this is one of those half-truths, you know. Um, you, you, have to, you have to ask yourself what is doing right. And you have to ask what is, do, what is good. What, what is it that God gives us that's good? You know, so often some of the best things that come to us are our sufferings. So here's, here's a pop quiz. It's a pop quiz. Okay, take out your pen and paper, put down your Bible. Here's a pop quiz. No, no, you don't have to do that. Just very quickly, A or B, two choices. What is the, the question is, what is the aim of your faith? A, the aim of my faith is to make me a better person and to make for a better life. Or B, the aim of my faith is to know God and to find my life in Him. Now, if you answered A, the first one, you are on the same path as the Pharisees who murdered Jesus. They used religion to get what they want. Right? Don't use religion to get what you want. That's paganism. That's not Christianity. True Christian faith is not about making you better. That may happen, but that's not what it's about. It's not about getting a better life. That may happen, but that's not what it's about. A true Christian understanding is that life actually will probably get harder the closer you follow Jesus. Now listen, I am very aware. Dave is very aware. Our pastor is very aware that we could have a much, much bigger church if I said differently. If I told you that life would go well and that you could get good things and if you just pray, God will give you what you want and you'll probably be rich in a couple years. Right? I could, we could have a much larger church if we told you that. But listen, I, I don't want your blood on my hands when I stand before the throne of God. I want you to hear what, what God says in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise from God. A robust faith. A robust, real faith only comes if you know Jesus is worth following in the hard times. Listen, for, for those of you who thought that the way to God is through religious practice or by kind of being morally good, I have great news for you. It's not about that. It's about knowing the person of Christ. Your sins all of them can be forgiven before a holy God if you simply turn from sin and follow Christ. Our main sin is the sin of unbelief. That's why, that is why we walk in faith in salvation. 
We turn to God in faith and follow Him. Stop trying to earn your way. Trust Christ with your life and follow Him. True Christian faith is to know God and to find life in Him. That brings us to part two, the trial in the courtyard, a different kind of, a different kind of trial. There's another person besides Jesus facing a trial. It's Peter. His prosecutor is not as intimidating as the high priest. She's an unnamed servant girl. Peter denies Christ three times, just as Jesus has foretold. I think the point of the text here is not about the different ways that he denies Jesus. Some, some make something of that, and perhaps there's something there. But I think the main point is that Peter makes a total bald denial of his best friend in his best friend's hour of greatest need. And, and how? How did he come to that? Jesus, Jesus is the one who healed his family. He saved Peter from drowning. He lived and taught Peter for years. He fed him in the desert. He performed miracles in front of him. He said that God Almighty had shown Peter truth that would be built into the church. He took Peter to the transfiguration. He called him his friend. He told him he would be forgiven. He washed his feet. He called him to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. How did Peter get there? How how is it that Peter could deny Jesus to a servant girl? Hard times, hard times that push us with personal safety, I think, really test our faith. That's why God sends us trials. It tests us. Many, many, many years later, Peter would write in the book of 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you were blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter knew that firsthand, didn't he? Firsthand experience. Peter's test here in in the book of Mark points to three things. It surfaces three things that I think we can learn from here. Number one, about pride. Peter, in his pride, thought he knew more than Jesus about how God worked. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Peter, in his pride, thought he knew better than Jesus about how God worked. Peter and Jesus had disagreed often. They disagreed about this very day, this very Friday. Peter had told Jesus that he would never be crucified. Peter told Jesus that he would fight for the death if he needed to defend him, and that even if all fell away, he would stand by Jesus. He told Jesus he could drink the cup Jesus was about to drink. Jesus had responded that Peter was wrong. Jesus had said that his life calling was to go to the cross, and that's why he was sent, to teach and then go to the cross. 
In Mark 8, 31, Jesus says that he must suffer many things and that he will be rejected by the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. He told Peter that. He said Peter would flee. He said Peter would deny him three times before the morning was out. But Peter believed in himself, not Jesus. He wants to take things into his own hands. Now in this, he's much like the scribes and high priests, isn't he? All this leads to his disgraceful denial of the Lord. Well, how, how about us? How do we see our own pride? How are we like Peter? I think there's, there's a number of warnings here for us. Uh, be careful about your pride. <laughs> Don't tell God what's right and, and good and what isn't. Don't think you know better than God. I, I hear people so easily, so flippantly dismiss doctrines or biblical principles that have stood the test of centuries. It's as if they were talking about a football game or, or their favorite flavor of ice cream. Be careful about what you tell God is right or wrong. We need to, we need to be willing to slay our pride. We need to kill it. Uh, last month, when Leanne left for the, for the U.S. to care for her father before he passed away, uh, I went to the gym. Leanne and I always go to the gym together, but this time I was alone. And so one of the women there, one of the personal trainers, uh, saw that I was alone, and she came up to me and she said, um, where's your partner? And I said, oh, well, her father's sick. She's gone back to the States uh, she said, how long is he gonna be go- uh, she going to be gone? And I said, well, maybe a long while. I think in five weeks or so. And she said, very, very, just up front, are you going to be faithful? Now, my first thought was, what kind of slime ball would cheat on his wife while she's caring for her sick father? But I didn't say that. I said, oh, absolutely. She's the love of my life. And she said, I respect that. I've been wondering if a man like you existed. And I said, well, here I am. (laughs) I walked down to the car park, and it was like there was a little tap on my shoulder. And, uh, you know, I realized, wait a second, what did I just do? I just exalted myself. Did you hear it? Listen, I'm a sexual sinner. And the reason I can tell you is you are too. (laughs) And I'm not that far from Peter. Do you see it? In my pride. When we start aggrandizing ourselves, when we start standing for ourselves, you see, we're not that far from denying our Lord. I just talked about how great I was. I didn't talk about why. I talked to Leanne about it that night. She said, well, I just think you need to go back to her and tell her about Jesus. And I hated how reasonable Leanne is. I hate that. (laughs) So last week, before I went to Turkey, I went to work out. She wandered in. It was the first time I'd seen her in weeks. And uh, I I went up to her. She seemed a little awkward. I said, listen, I I, I misspoke a couple weeks ago. She said, you did? (laughs) I said, yeah, I, I think I left you with the impression that there was something good about me. And I don't want to appear prideful. I want you to know 
that the only reason I could make that statement is because of Christ in me. I'm a follower of Jesus. And he is the one who's transformed my life so that I'm a faithful man. And she said something, but it didn't mind. It, it didn't matter. It wasn't about evangelism, you see. It was about dropping this load of pride, of slaying our pride, nailing it to the cross. You need to do that to wherever it comes to you. The way to test it is, do you hear the gospel in your language? Are you offering grace? Are you, are you making sure that you are exalting the Lord and humbling yourself? Secondly, do you see how Peter followed at a distance in verse 54? When things are frightening, we tend to follow Jesus at a distance. You know that feeling? When, when something comes up where you may be weighed by someone, that fear of man kicks in. And you want to you keep Jesus a little out there. You know, he calls us to do kind of crazy things. Trials, hard times expose our half-hearted, our half-heartedness, our halfway followings of Jesus. Jesus tells the church in the book of Revelations that he spits out such people. He spits out such churches that are half-hearted or lukewarm. Make every effort to follow closely. Don't follow Jesus at a distance. You know, just as just as many are quick to dismiss Bible doctrine, like Peter, we're, we're quicker sometimes to dismiss what the Bible says to us about ourselves, about us personally. For example, when the Bible says we are rebels, we are enemies of God, we need to take that for what it is. We, are, we were enemies of God if we don't know Christ, and you are an enemy of God if you are not with him now. We're, we're so glad you're here if you don't know Christ. We're, we're thrilled that you've come. You are so welcome. But that's what the Bible says. And there's, a, there's a, even a rebellious nature about that, about that very statement. Listen, press into Jesus. Press into him. Don't follow at a distance. Open your life. Open your life to be examined by those who, who know you. Believe the things the Bible says about you. Don't s- dismiss the scriptures and what it says about you as a person. You are not an exception to what the Bible claims about you. Thirdly, I'm intrigued by this phrase, this sentence, that Peter warmed himself by the enemy's fires. That he went, he went and warmed himself at the fires of the guards. These are the guards who will beat Jesus, mock him. Do you warm yourself, do you warm yourself by enemy fires? That is, are, are you intrigued by the by the things of the world. Many of, many of you think you can have both. You, you act like you're not going to get hurt if you indulge in the world. You act like it's not going to hurt Jesus. But to cozy up to the enemy's fires is to be burned, just as Peter was. You cannot follow Jesus and love the things of the world. You can't do it. You can't love sin and Jesus, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world. If you do, the love of God is not in you. Have you heard of Timothy Treadwell? Have you heard that name? He was a, 
eco-warrior. He loved bears, grizzly bears. His passion was bears. He did interviews on late-night TV shows in America with David Letterman and Jay Leno to talk about bears. He documented them. He filmed them. He studied them. He lived with them. Every summer, despite the dangers and over the objections of the park rangers, Timothy Treadwell would camp out in the middle of bear families in Alaska. He would get close to bears. He named them with cute names. He claimed that he liked bears better than people. He claimed that his love of bears had healed him of heroin addiction. On October 5th, 2003, bears ripped through his tent, killed him, and ate him and his girlfriend. We should be more careful about loving things that could eat us. (laughs) Yet so many who would never think of trying to make friends with bears in wild parks cozy up to something far more dangerous. People do the same thing with sin. They give sin cute names. They imagine sin will make them happy. They love sin. They think sin might cure them. But sin does not love you. It will eat you when it's ready. Flee the fires of the world. Don't warn yourself there. Seek out a godly life. So to avoid the denial of Peter, nail your pride to the cross. Don't follow at a distance. Never warm yourself at enemy fires. Now a word for those who follow Jesus but have denied Christ. Remember, this is not the end of, for Peter. There's great grace and love and forgiveness. Robert sat in my living room a number of years ago. He had come to Christ in a Texas university. He had thought his family were basically secular people, but he found out quite different when he told them that he had become a Christ follower. They had put the pressure on, hired deprogrammers, made him do things, pulled him out of school. And Robert, in a weak moment, denied Christ. He sat in my living room, weeping with sorrow. And I was able to say, oh, Robert, you've got, you've got two models in your life, two models. You can be Judas or you can be Peter and you can choose. What is it going to be? Forgiveness is offered. Godly sorrow, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, produces repentance and leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Robert's sorrow was godly. He walks with Jesus to this day. And we see what it did in Peter's life. He became a world changer. I mean, just weeks from this moment, he stands before this very tribunal and tells them the truth about Christ and what they've done with no fear for himself. So remember, great grace. Number three, the ultimate judge, the final court. We're looking back at verse 62 where Jesus makes this astounding proclamation. 
You know, there, there are many here in Dubai and all across the Arabian Peninsula who would say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. And that's a trick statement, really. Some, some G- Jews during Jesus' day avoided saying the name God altogether. They saw it as unholy. Others had so twisted the idea of Son of God to be a political hero, a conquering king, the meaning was completely changed. Jesus wanted people to understand the biblical understanding of the Son of God. That's why when demons announced that he was the Son of God, he told them to shut up. He knew it would be confusing. So he spent years teaching, instructing, to carefully expose the truth that he was the Son of God in the biblical sense. So over the course of the entire book of Mark, you see Jesus revealing that he is the Son of God in his miracles, in his teachings and instructions, in his mission. We see that he exposes the truth that he was the Son of God. But we we come to verse 62 in the book of Mark. There's a clear question and a clear answer. The high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now what Jesus is saying to the high priest is the I am statement from Exodus 3. When Moses said, what is your name? And God says, I am that I am. Jesus says, I am. But more than that, he says, I may be on trial now, but one day, one day, know this, we will meet again. Caiaphas, you and I will meet again. And you will see me seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I will be seated in clouds of glory. There is a court where you will have no authority. Jesus is saying, I am the judge. I am the promised one of Daniel 7 in clouds of glory, the Son of Man, before the royal court. I am the one promised in Psalm 110 where the world is my footstool. Jesus is very aware here that his confession will earn him death. He's not being questioned by a servant girl in the courtyard. He's stating to those he knows will nail him to the cross that he is the Son of God. He is equating himself with God. And for them, it was blasphemy. And for all those who don't believe it, But Jesus is not compromised. He is true to his promises. There is no falsehood in it. You know, many today put Jesus on trial. They always, I don't don't know why they always seem so sure, but they seem so sure in their judgment, just like Caiaphas. Maybe you've done that. Are you sure you're right? Are you even even sure that Jesus is on trial here? There's a sense that Caiaphas is the one on trial. For there will be a higher court where Caiaphas has no jurisdiction. This high priest, he's the one in danger. And listen, we'll be there too. We, We will be at that court. Just like Caiaphas. And we have a choice. Just like Caiaphas. 
When Jesus, when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think it's a statement not only about Christ's divinity, but also that there are two ways to meet God. You can meet him as Father, or you can meet him as Judge. You can meet him as Father through Christ with our sins forgiven, or you can meet him as Judge on your own in your sin. And I promise you, you don't want to meet him on your own. You don't want to do that. You don't want your sin to become to come before God without forgiveness because we were meant to live without sin. We were not made to be in sin. We've been compromised. On that day, God will be fierce. He will be terrible. He will be a judge to all those who don't know Him. That's because Jesus hates injustice. He hates sin. He will punish it with rage and wrath. And that includes all injustice and unrighteousness in us. Do do you understand? Do you understand that all sin is an affront to God? Because we're all made in the image of God. So, So everything that you've done, every slight every betrayal, every broken promise, every denial, every secret sin, every compromise of faith is a sin against God, an affront to a holy God. Peter would preach in just weeks on the day of Pentecost, flee the wrath that's to come in the book of Acts. And I, I beg you, I plead with you the same. So how? How, how does one meet God as Father? Well, you must understand the gospel. Don't dismiss what Jesus says about us. We are in bondage to sin. We can only come to God through the blood sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, given to pay for our sins, the sacrifice of atonement. On Him, on Christ, on the cross, was laid our sin. God is loving and good, and He's willing to lay down His life for sinners. When he bore our sins on the cross, he did so to purchase us out of bondage so that our sins might be forgiven and completely wiped away. We don't come to him by our works or our good deeds. We come to Christ through repentance and faith. We humble ourselves. We bend our knee to him. We commit that we will follow him in simple trust as our Lord. Please meet God as your father, not your judge. Put your faith in him. And remember the three courts? The kangaroo court of the religious, the trial of Peter in the courtyard, and the final judgment to come. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that when we look at Peter, our first thoughts are to think, how how could he? And our second, more sober thoughts are, we would have done the same. We are weak, O God. 
and we desperately need you. Lord, we would ask that you would help us remember that religion doesn't get us to you, only a person, only Christ. Father God, we we pray that you would uh, slay pride in us, guard us from following at a distance and warming ourselves by the enemy's fire, and help us remember, help us remember the final court where we will see Jesus in full glory. Oh God, I pray that we would all see you there as our friend. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.